that was bugging me, so I had to move it. Hey, um, a couple other things about the groups is the the locations and all that, if you're wondering where these things are at, because that might be a factor in why you'd sign up for a group, um, then make sure you talk to Bruce as well in the back, and he'll tell you kind of the regions of where the leaders live. The group may not necessarily meet in their house, but, you know, there's a possibility that it would, and so um, we wanted you to to know that you can do that. Um, I, I would encourage you to look at the list and see if there's people you already know and maybe um, think along those lines. And uh, I'm sure Bruce can also help you, you know, point you to a group as well if you, you just have questions about that. Um, it's, it's very easy to stumble out of church, to just kind of fall out of church and to, to stumble out, stop going. It's, it's almost impossible to stumble out of community. So it's, it's, it's easy to just come to the gathering and just stumble out and eventually never come back to something like this. It's almost impossible to, to, to join a community, to invest yourself in a community, which is um, what happens in, in groups, and then, and then stumble away. It, it just, so rows like this can only do so much. Circles do so much more. When you're actually looking at people, you're interacting with people, so we want to we want to move people from rows to circles, and um, groups really help us do that. That establishes community, which makes it very very difficult to to kind of wander off in life. And so I, I just uh, want to pray for you in this area of groups, and pray for all of us as we kind of dive into today's message. So let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here. God, we just surrender this time to you. We offer ourselves up to you right now, just as we sing, Lord. Uh, we want our life to be an offering. So, Lord, we pray that right now our, our attitude and our heart would just be yours. God, that we leave other things at, you know, leave them where they're at. Leave them out of these doors. Lord, we pray that as we're here, we just submit ourselves to you. And we'd be open to listening to you as you speak to us. God, I do pray for this uh, growth group launch. We're excited about it, Lord. We've been looking forward to this for months. And God, um, many, many people have been looking forward to this for a long time um, if they were, weren't in groups in the past. So God, I just pray that we would just see um, a tremendous response, Lord, and that these groups would all fill, Lord, and that um, people would engage with each other, Lord, and that we'd grow together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in this message series called Paradox. This is actually the last message today. And... Up there on the screen and on your outline, well, it's on your outline, but you see just a quick review of what this word means, okay? A paradox, according to dictionary.com, is a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory. It also seems absurd, but in reality expresses something that may be true. It's a paradox. It doesn't, it's like you look at it, you, you hear it, and you're like, that doesn't line up with what I thought reality. You know, that, that seems ridiculous. Um, Webster says that it's a tenet contrary to received opinion. So we're looking at paradoxes in Scripture because many many things about following Christ about following Christ feels like paradoxical. It just seems it just it's very very it's challenging. When you read some passages, it just it challenges widely accepted beliefs. And so We've looked at a few of those, and today we're going to wrap things up by looking at this statement. There is profit and loss. That's the message title. There's profit and loss. That's a paradox. And before I really get into uh, the idea, I want to look at the passage that it comes from. It's in Matthew chapter 16. 
And I want to give you the backstory. We start with the most important statement ever made about Jesus' identity. And it's found in Matthew 16. And in this, in this part of Matthew's Gospel, it, you, you see all these signs and miracle, these miracles that Jesus did. Um, these healings, just these amazing things. And people are going, who is this guy? You know, who, who is this, this guy that's just causing all this ruckus? Who, who is this guy that's gaining all these followers? Who is this guy? And he's able to raise the dead. He's able to heal sick, legitimately sick people, verifiably, you know, with these verifiable changes in their lives. And, and so Jesus, with all of that, he comes to his disciples. It says this in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man. This is his term for himself. Okay. And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet, a great prophet, who had been beheaded. And there's some amazing statements made about John the Baptist. One of them that kind of gets me is, a statement that says, since John, there has been none other like him, born of a woman. It's like, he, besides Jesus Christ, like, he's this, he's the greatest man who ever lived, is this idea you get in the scripture. The reason why is because he took the lowest position possible. We find out the greatness in the scripture, this is one of the paradoxes, is that, you know, God makes the insignificant significant. We looked at this a few weeks ago. But he's one of those characters that, I mean, he just took a low position. In fact, you know, when he started gaining a following, he pointed people to, to who? To Jesus. He says, I must decrease. He needs to increase. I must decrease. He keeps taking kind of a back seat to push Jesus forward. Sometimes when people gained a following in the Scriptures, they enjoyed it. And they would step forward. Or they'd step much closer to Jesus. What does John do? He kind of takes steps back. There's these statements made. He's kind of this, there's no one else like him as far as, who, who took a back seat. He's, he was called great. So some say that this was John the Baptist who'd come back from the dead. Now, not, not so, but apparently some people were saying that. Others say Elijah. Elijah, another great and persecuted prophet. Well, persecuted prophet, but he was taken to heaven in this mysterious manner. His chariots come and they carry him off to heaven. So some people said this is, Elijah, come back. This is him. Come back from heaven. Um, still others say Jeremiah. Jeremiah, like he was known as the weeping prophet, who was really broken up over the deterioration, the decay of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus was also broken up over the decay of God's people. And so some people felt like, man, is Jeremiah come back to life or sent back from heaven? And and then he goes on, he says, or one of the other prophets, and Jesus says this, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? He turns and he looks at his, at his closest, his disciples, and says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a huge statement. You are the Christ. This word Christ, it's the Greek transliteration for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. And what he's saying, he's making a huge statement. You're the promised one. You're God's promised, anointed, set-apart, consecrated one for the purpose of redeeming God's people. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
this name that Peter was was stating, it wasn't Jesus Christ. Like Christ wasn't his last name. Sometimes we think Jesus was his first name. Christ was his last name. Christ was his title. This was his this was his official title. Like he was divinely appointed, commissioned, accredited by God Himself. And so he makes this bold statement, and then Jesus replied to, to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And he's like, he tells Peter, this wasn't like you guys all got around and talked about it and you all just dissected and figured out this must be. But God showed you, God turned the lights on and you recognize I'm more than just a mere man. I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then he goes on, and I tell you that you are Peter. He changes his name here from Simon to Peter. Peter means rock. And he says, and on this rock I will build my church. Because Peter would be the primary church leader in Jerusalem. He would be the guy that would lead the early church in the first century. And he says, and about the church, he says, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. So God chooses to reveal this fact that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Like this is... This is huge for, for Israel. They had been waiting for this moment in history. Everything pointed towards this. And as we, we look back to this event in the sense of this is earth shattering. And God chose to reveal this fact to this Galilean fisherman. Not an intellectual or elite person, but kind of like a rough, crusty man from a part of this region that was looked down upon. And this is how God works. Again, he, he does significance things through insignificant people. He uses the weak, right? We looked at that last week. But Peter, he got it really right. He made the statement. He got it right on. And then the passage goes on. Jesus goes on in Matthew 16, verse 21, and he says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter, now, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he has in his mind an image of who's going to save our people? Obviously, a conquering person, a deliver, a strong person who's just going to rescue us and redeem us. And, he, and he's making this bold statement. Now Jesus begins to talk to them. He's going to suffer at the hands of the elders. He's going he's to die. He'll rise again. So Peter takes him to this, Aside, and I've actually, I've never had this happen just like this, but I've had this happen. I'll make statements publicly, and then I'll have people privately come to me and say, what do you really think about that? <laughs> like, yeah, I heard you up there, but let's have a, like a man-to-man talk about this. What are you really about? Or what are you really thinking? Can you give me the insights? Because I really think Peter was saying, yeah, that was great, man. That was awesome. But what's really going on? Peter's like, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You see, he was trying to, he was saying, he turned this, he changed this guy's name into a rock. And now he says, you're being a rock. You're being a stumbling block to me. You're blocking the will of God. This is God's will for my life, Jesus is saying. And he's saying, you know, get behind me. You're, you're being an instrument here. Peter went from getting it really right to just really getting it wrong. 
This was a gross misunderstanding of, of, in Peter's mind, of what Jesus' purpose really was. And so what Jesus does in the passage we're going to continue to look at right here is he gives us a detailed description of what it means to follow him. He lays it out. He says, you've waited for the Messiah. Now I'm going to tell you, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to tell you what it will take to actually follow me. There's a business book. It's called The Tipping Point that I read a few years back. The business book is about the moment when an idea or a trend or a social behavior it kind of crosses this threshold and it tips and begins to just spread like a wildfire. When a business hits a tipping point, it's that moment where it just, it just, production just increases. The word gets out, everyone jumps on it, and it tips. And so this author of this business book talks about the tipping point. And many people have looked at this whole idea um, since that book was written. But many times during G- Jesus' three years of public ministry, he would be at this kind of tipping point. And you can just imagine, he'd have crowds. He'd have, because of the signs, because of the miracles, the healings, he just gathered this huge crowd and he'd get to this major tipping point. And you can imagine how excited the disciples would be to see this happening. Wow, look at, look at Jesus. Look at the guy we're so close to. We're, we're, we're in the core of, and you know, this thing's just about to explode. And every time he hit the tipping point, Jesus would say something like this. And he'd thin the, he'd thin out the group. And you could imagine the disciples thinking, oh man, it was going to be so, we were going to be. He gives them this statement, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So if you are willing, if you're here and if you're willing, following Christ is a deliberate choice that we must consider. Jesus is telling us And then, what to expect if you make the decision to follow Christ? You must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and fall. So he points to these three areas. First, to follow Jesus means a person must deny himself. Which means to say no to ourself and say yes to him. It's deny what I want and say yes to what he wants. This is something that will go on in our life over and over again. Whenever there's this clear collision between what I normally do, what I normally approach, and he has a different approach, a different thought, a different teaching. To follow means we must deny ourselves. Our normal way and our normal approach, whenever there's a clear collision, we say no to our way and we say yes to his way. That's what he's calling us to. Like in friendships, in relationships, you have this, there's some passages that are in your listening guide. But if we want to you know, we typically, natively, our way is when friendships or relationships go wrong, we blow up in anger. We sweep offenses under the carpet and we pretend they don't exist. They didn't happen. So what, what we have to wrestle with is we have to deny our old way. If we're going to follow him, he's got some new ways, some new approaches. We have to deny the old way and begin to respond to him, say yes to his way. So whether you're in bed, the day's over, and you realize a relationship is wrong in the old way, is just go to bed. Deal with it tomorrow. Sleep it off. Pretend it didn't happen. Look at Ephesians 4.26. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Again, we used to be able to just, I'm steaming. I'm ticked about what this person did. I'm mad. I'm getting bitter. And I'm going to bed. I'm going to sleep on it. And what does that do? It creates more bitterness. Continues to fuel. Chokes out the life. But we think, "This this is my approach. But in our relationships... 
We're to deny ourselves. Our native reaction, we need to deny that. In relationships, this whole area is so important. Whether you're in bed, you know, the day's just about over. He's saying, say no to that. Get up out of bed. Pick up the phone. Say, I need to meet with you. Let's get together over coffee. Let's straighten this out. Or, or maybe you're not in bed. Maybe you're here this morning. You're at church. You're in worship. Scripture says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus said this, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're at this public worship service, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. You know, you're here at worship. Most people come to worship for themselves. To worship God, so it's to praise God, but it's also for ourselves, I think. We come, and we're, we're primarily wanting to get something. We're primarily wanting to, to learn, to get taught, to, to be fed in a sense, to get topped off. It's like our spiritual gas station sometimes. When we pull up to the gas station, we get gas in the tank, we feel a little bit encouraged, and we, we get on our way till next week. We come back, we get topped off. We might miss a few weeks. We get topped off. It's for ourselves. And so sometimes we come to worship, we come to service, and God brings something to our mind. He shows us that there's something wrong in a relationship. He shows us that there's a, a rift in our relationships. And look at what the Scripture says. It says, there you remember that your brother has something against you. You're at worship, and you remember that there's a, there's a strain on a relationship. God brings something to your mind. Now, what do we typically do? We typically, we shove it off. We force it down, or we put it to the back of our minds, because I'm at worship. This is me time. This is about me and God. And I've actually talked with people about this. When I know there's a, a rift, and I've just encouraged, you know, you need to straighten that out. You can't just continue to... Pretend that this isn't impacting your personal worship and your time with God. And, and, and I've had people say things of, of this kind of nature of, well, this is all I've got. This is all I've got is my time with me and God. And they're, they're not recognizing how important it is to God that they straighten out. Because look at what the verse says. Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Don't go through with worship, he's saying. Don't, don't. Shove this, put this to the back of your mind. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Get it clear. So again, deny ourselves. Deny our old way of doing it. Say no to that and say yes to him. That's what it means to deny ourselves. Or whether you're right or wrong in relationships. You've got a problem and you're like, man, I am right. And they're clearly in the wrong. Look at what Romans 12:18 says. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. He's saying, whether you're right or wrong, Live at peace with everyone. We're to take initiative. Now, it doesn't mean that everything gets straightened out and that you just magically pretend or that God magically erases pain in your life from relational turmoil. But he's saying take initiative. Continue to pursue peace with others. Continue to, continue to work towards reconciliation. This is very important. It's not natural. You're going to have to deny yourself. In finances, there's another area where we've got to struggle with denying ourselves. In finances, we typically want to stockpile, stockpile our money, things, and try to keep it for ourselves so we can get more for ourselves. And Jesus says that we should be free to give. He says, give and it will be given to you. Replace selfishness with, look at this verse, Luke 6, 38. Whether or not you think you can afford to be generous, he says this, give and it will be given to you. And look at what comes back. Comes back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And we tend to think about, what's the least I can get by with in being a generous person in my life? And in fact, we find out that 
you know, as we give, God pours back. Again, it's a paradox because we we struggle with ourself. But he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Say yes to him. In decisions, we typically put my comfort, my convenience first. And then Jesus challenges us with this verse in Matthew 6.33. He says, but seek first. Whenever we're consumed with worry about our stuff and decisions about our needs being met and worried about all of that, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This whole idea of denying ourselves, it carries the wording in the, in, the, in the Greek. It carries the idea that we're going to have to keep doing this over and over and over again. We'll have to keep denying. No, no, I can't go my way. I got to go. I got to say yes to him. So he says, deny ourselves. Then secondly, he says, take up his cross. If anyone would follow me, he would take up his cross, which means to bear the troubles and difficulty of following Christ. The challenge of what, what this will do in my life. In the Roman Empire, a convicted criminal, when taken to be crucified, he was forced to carry his own cross. And what that did is he was publicly demonstrating that he was in submission to the ruler that he'd been rebelling against. And people would spit, it, spit in his face. People would mock him and curse him as he's walking to his own crucifixion. But it was a demonstration of he was in submission to the ruler that he'd opposed. And so when we follow Christ and we take up our cross, what we're saying is, I'm submitting myself to the one that I had rebelled against. It's the same idea. I'm willingly submitting myself. Because before deciding to follow Christ, I was God's enemy, Scripture says. I rebelled against His, his ways and His plan. I rebelled against all of that. And now by following Him, I've decided to publicly submit myself to Him as the ruler of my life. I'm no longer fighting in opposition to His ways. I've decided to, to bear the suffering. And part of this has to do with the fact that we will endure suffering in this life. Following Christ will bring certain amount of, of opposition when it comes to His way and what is popular opinion. Those things will not line up. Then he says, you know, deny ourselves, take up his cross and follow me. If we follow him, we should expect to face the same things that he did. We're going we're gonna to deal with some of the same things that Jesus faced. Like the children's game, follow the leader. If you've ever played that, you know, or follow the leader and you sing the song and people do the things together. The idea is we, we should expect to, to follow in the same things. We shouldn't expect Pleasantville. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. But just this, I remember the movie, it was, it was all about this, you know, kind of like Spider-Man meets, because it's Spider-Man, meets um, the Brady Bunch or something. I don't know, it's just really happy and pleasant and, and hence the name, Pleasantville. But something goes wrong. But in the beginning of Pleasantville, everything's just perfect, right? And... I think we have that sense that I'm going to follow Christ and I'm going to step into Pleasantville. You know, I'm told about before I was an enemy of God, God has a wonderful plan for my life. You need to be forgiven. God has abundant life in store for me. I'm stepping into Pleasantville. And we, we step into that life and we, we see there's some opposition. And we, it's not necessarily Pleasantville all the time. Scripture implies that, it, you know, we should prepare for maybe not Pleasantville, but sometimes first century 
second century Rome where there was tremendous persecution, tremendous opposition. We don't typically think like this. And this is how Jesus would keep, he would thin out the crowd. He would keep thinning out this potential group of followers. He'd make these statements. And you could just see the disciples going, we were looking so good. It was going to be so good. Jesus, you shouldn't have said that. I heard a pastor recently say, if Jesus planted a church in my city, he said, then mine would probably be bigger. And he said, if Apostle Paul planted a church in my city, he said, I bet my church would be bigger. Because I don't call them to the same level of commitment that Jesus called them to. I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. We can grow much bigger churches than Jesus because... Because we we don't call people to the same cost. We don't call people to the same commitment. So the lesson here, never seek to escape the cross. Never seek to go around the cross, but surrender to God's will and His purpose in it. If I'm only following Christ so that He can give me the American dream, He can, only, you know, he can help me with my plans, then I'm going to be severely disappointed. And so Jesus, He continues. He gives us a very good reason to continue to follow. It's this. It's on the back. It's important for us to recognize and then remember to the value of following Christ. There's real value in this. And we don't typically see the value because it's a paradox. Again, look at how He goes. Matthew 16, He goes on. He makes those statements about falling, denying ourselves, taking up our cross. Then He says in Matthew 16.25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good? It's a powerful verse. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? There is no life for the soul apart from God. And this kind of, this kind of commitment is what it takes to connect with God through, through Jesus Christ. This type of commitment... It will take our life. It's a very bad bargain to trade this world for your soul. We lose. You will find that you're a complete loser in the trade. If you keep trying to grab things, when you balance the account, you will find that you have not gained anything at all. So we have to really wrestle with this whole idea. Following Christ in gambling turns. We're going to talk about gambling in church real quick. When you decide to follow Christ... It's like you put everything on the table. You go all in. If you don't go all in, you lose. And to the extent that you pull back, you actually don't get the reward. So whenever we know what's right, like a sacrifice needs to be made, or something right needs to be done, and we shrink back from doing that, we pull back, we actually lose life. We get empty. We hollow out. And and Jesus is saying... He's saying this, nothing is worth more than your soul. Nothing. There was a missionary, his name is Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary who, he had a real passion to reach unreached people. And so him, along with some of his companions, went to an unreached area with their new brides and began to reach out to a group of Indians in Ecuador. And he and four of his companions lost their lives as they were trying to... They had, they had established contact with um, these Indians. They were leaving gifts to these Indians. 
trying to just figure out how do we build a bridge to these people who speak clearly different languages than us. Well, they established contact. They felt like they had built trust with an individual from the tribe. And then they were ambushed and killed by the tribe. They were trying to reach these men with, you know, these, these tribal leaders with the gospel and they were killed as they did it. Eventually, that tribe came to Christ as this, one of the sons of one of those uh, five men went back and continued to pursue and started leading people to Christ in that tribe. And it all made sense to the tribe. And there was this brokenness, obviously, over what had happened But when they realized what this group was trying to do. But in Jim Elliott's journal, one of those guys, who, <clears throat> one of the leaders, seven years before his, his death, he makes this statement, which expresses his belief in missions work. He says this. It's up on the screen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, real life is found through sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And this whole conversation that Jesus is making in, the, in Matthew 16, this is typical Jesus right here. This is typical Jesus passage, calling people to full commitment. In another place, he's, he points out that we must count the cost. In Luke, it's Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 33. Jesus makes this statement about counting the cost. Verse 28 says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Of course we would, wouldn't we? We'd make sure we can carry this project to completion. For if he lays the foundation, he's not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Then he says this, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. See, he decides ahead of time if he's going to see it through. The builder decides ahead of time if he's going to see it through. And says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus has, he has a claim. If you decide to follow him, he wants everything. And he has a claim on all your energy. He, he has a claim on all your time. He has a claim on all of your talents. He has a claim on all your resources. He has a claim on your life. He's saying, if anyone who does not give up everything, he can't be my disciple. If you're floundering in your faith, it might be that you're, you're standing on a faulty foundation. You maybe haven't counted the cost. You might be thinking, no one ever told me that this was going to be a hard road. That's really not fair. I've been doing this for so long and no one ever pointed these things out to me. Again, we can build larger churches, couldn't we? But Jesus, if we get into the heart of his message, he calls us to full commitment. So Jesus made these statements because he wanted people to have a faith that was strong. Is there anything that you're holding back today? Anything at all? Is there anything that you decided to, to hold back and not put on the table before you decided to follow? Or is there something, something along the way that you've decided to pull back and to keep to yourself? If there's anything you're holding on to, you, to then Christianity is just going to be an empty religion. It will hollow out. It will not. The scriptures are very clear here. We tend to just cushion ourselves from the hardships of following Christ. And he wants us to keep giving it back to him. 
Paul did some accounting in Philippians 3. Paul said this, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. He says, for the sake of Christ, he says, everything in my past, he added, the idea is he added everything up to a certain point in the past and he decided to follow Christ. And now he lives this way. This, this verse does not mean that he kept making the decision to look into the past and figure, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it? No, he had done that leading up to his decision. He'd considered it was worth it. What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is not the call of just a church leader like Paul. This is not the call of just a pastor or someone in full-time missionary service. This is the call that Christ makes on people's lives who would follow Him. Paul had done an accounting and he found Jesus to be worth far more than he had. So let's just wrap this up. Jesus gives us the motivation back in the passage. He wraps up this this conversation with these last two verses. He gives us the motivation to keep following. He says this, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. First, Jesus points to our, our future reward. He talks about what is in store. And that's a good reason to consider the price. It's a, it's a good reason to pay the price to follow because there's a reward. There's a reference in this verse to the second coming when Jesus will come back and He will return to earth, wrap up history, and He will reward those for the lives that they've lived. This that future day, that day should shape today. That day in the future should shape today. Secondly, the opportunity in the present, verse 28, he talks about these people that will be standing there before you know, they, they see some things happen. There's a sense that we also need to get motivated to deny ourselves when we realize that we're part of God's larger purpose right here, right now. These guys lived to see some incredible events. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, ascended, and the church formed, they saw some incredible events as the, as the kingdom began to expand rapidly. But our lives are too short for this, you know, to just make the story about ourselves. This is God's story. He's invited us to join Him in His story. There's an opportunity in the present. Look at that question there at the bottom. Is there anything, here's the test, is there anything I'm not willing to lose in order to follow Christ. If there is, then it might be that you have not yet grasped what's really at stake and who it is you're following. You maybe haven't wrestled with following Christ and what He's called you to. The power and blessing that you see in genuine followers is only available to those who decide to follow in that way, in the way that He's asked us to follow. If you're a follower and maybe you've taken something back, you've pulled something off the table after you've decided then let it go. I just encourage you, let it go and taste the joy of, of, again, seeing what it means to truly follow Christ. We're going to receive our offering and I'd like to draw your attention to these next steps on the back. Wrapping things up. Matthew 16.24 You might consider memorizing this verse, which is the statement, the bold statement Jesus makes. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. What a great statement to just keep this in your mind. Just say, this is, this is the type of commitment that He wants. He wants it all. 
Secondly, set aside, these are on the back of your connection card, set aside some time alone this week to count the cost. Maybe you recognize, you know what? I didn't put it on the table. All I've been doing is I've been sitting on the sidelines and I'll put a chip in, I'll put a chip in. I'll, I didn't, I've never put my life on the table. I've never decided to go all in and just to trust Him and to say, I will follow you wherever you lead. So maybe this week just about recognizing that or remembering going back and reflecting upon your decision point whenever that was. Maybe making some recommitments. The last box on there is maybe for the first time, I'm deciding I want to follow Christ. In the way that He has asked me to follow Him, I would love to make that decision. We, we would love to help you clarify, obviously, what that is totally involving. So if you check that box, um, we'll send you something in the mail. And if you'd like, we would, be, we would love to talk with you further about a decision to follow Christ, what that means. We want to explain it to you. It's something that we share and we want to clarify with you. It's really a decision you have to decide to make for yourself. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, for... God, we're the type of people that we love when someone tells us the truth. We love when people don't dance.